everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's episode, we have another special guest. Uh, Ken, why don't you give us the uh, the friend introduction today for our special guest joining us? Yeah, um, joining us today is my friend Elizabeth Woning, who um, lives in Redding, California, and is a staff pastor at uh, Bethel Church. But she also is deeply involved something uh, in something called Changed Movement, which you will obviously hear more about. Um, I've gotten to know Elizabeth over the last couple of years, and we've really, um, I don't know, we've developed just a strong mutual admiration. And we're, uh, we're planning, by the way, to hold a collaborative uh, joint event, uh, probably with one or two other speakers in 2024. So look for that coming up. Um, Elizabeth has so much to say, and she is so powerful in what she says that, Elizabeth, I'm just delighted and thrilled to have you on our podcast. Welcome. Wow. Thank you so much, Ken. It's a real honor. It really, you know, when I, I was reflecting as you were talking on our conversations, and I think I've most enjoyed being able to get down into some of the theological conversations that not many people that I know will go and you've been a really, uh, really honored me in processing ideas from the Bible and just con- uh, conceptual ideas theologically. And so thank you so much for having me on. Well, again, my pleasure. And, you know, praise the Lord. I think the Bible is our lens for all truth. And so uh, I'm glad that we can help focus things using it together. Um, Elizabeth, obviously, you're a Christian minister and uh, you have a history with the Lord. Tell us about your earliest experiences, the Christian faith, and your own development as a Christian woman. Well, I think I'll start with kind of my teenage years, as early as 12 or 13. So I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, PCUSA, and and as early as 12 or 13, really loved theology. Um, I was in a pretty intellectual community, so my parents were both college grads and successful professionals. And so my experience of Christianity growing up was pretty cerebral. Um, Then through my teenage years, mostly I questioned my identity and that emerged, that moved into kind of same sex feelings. And I became attracted to a woman when I was 16, that was really a landmark experience for me and began kind of drawing me towards the LGBT community. And so you know, I went to college. I studied in Europe for a couple of years as well. And in all of those, in all of that time, questioning my sexuality, but I don't know if I would say my sexuality was the biggest issue as much as um, questioning my identity and, and who I was and who I was becoming and who I wanted to be. But then uh, I, I, I don't think I set into place this commitment to uh, a a sexual label until I was in my early 20s. So I was married briefly to a man. And about two years into that marriage, um, I had a really devastating mental breakdown and uh, was diagnosed with bipolar disorder type one. And that that became the defining moment for me, really, for about 20 years. Um, that mental breakdown, it it kind of ushered me into institutionalized mental health care. And um, 
so in that moment, I reasoned that the part of my breakdown was associated with not owning my identity as a lesbian. So I left my husband. Um, we separated for several years before I uh, got a divorce from him. And I moved from our home to a metropolitan gay community and began assuming this lesbian identity that I had pondered, um, mainly by virtue of my friend group and this woman that I had been in love with. And she and I, we continued to be very close for, for years, even through my marriage, um, that early marriage. But my my mental illness meant that um, I, I, I really struggled with reality in some ways. And the gay community honestly kept me alive. Um, the friends that I had, the belonging that I had um, all through my 20s was instrumental in, in me surviving some of the most tumultuous experiences of my life as my, you know, my aspirations to start uh, postgraduate work and other things all went through the, I, I had to turn down full scholarships to Vanderbilt and Berkeley and U of Chicago and other things. I, my life tanked really. And, and so I would say that my experience of lesbianism and the LGBT community seemed like it was very life-giving, life like it was a flotation device in many ways. At, but at the same time, I was not, the more I embraced this fresh identity, if you will, or this lesbian identity, the sicker I became. And um, I was, I went through multiple hospitalizations. I tried to commit suicide. Um, meanwhile, my faith, um, when I, I had been, I studied in Europe for a couple of years, as I mentioned. And um, when I was about 20, I was at the University of Durham in England. And uh, I, I decided that I would kind of make some decisions about my faith at that time. And so I, I, uh, I was living at St. John's College, where one of the Anglican seminaries is, and just really questioned whether God was alive. And um, that question of, is God real, was so tormenting to me. Um, could he be accessed? And that question drove me then to when I was 30 to go to seminary. So when I was 30, I went to a PCUSA seminary, openly gay, still with this nagging question of what does faith mean? Who is God? And um, I had expected to go to seminary as kind of a, let's turn over a new leaf and uh, hoping that I would get better, that by embracing this dream of studying theology, that my mental health would improve. And instead, it got worse. So my experience in seminary was I learned how through postmodern thought, I, I learned how to completely deconstruct the Bible and doubt the resurrection, doubt the crucifixion, doubt the uh, the divinity of Christ. And I tried to commit suicide. I was in the hospital for 30 days before I graduated. Um, and I left seminary devastated. Mm. But I ended up moving from this really large metropolitan area where I had been doing ministry and serving really the teen gay community. Um, I moved from there to a rural community. And um, in that rural community, 
I uh, came into contact for the first time with the charismatic church movement and um, was invited by a local youth pastor. So I started doing youth ministry after seminary, really in parish ministry uh, began, you know, I continued that journey of who is God. But then this other youth pastor invited me to a gathering. And I I saw the Holy Spirit show up in power. And I had never seen anything like that ever in my life. Um, I when I when I share really, I often say it was a Presbyterian's worst nightmare. <laughs> it was, you know, here I was, a dignified hymn singing Presbyterian and all contemporary music and kids started falling out and there was weeping and deliverance people were being filled with the holy spirit it was around about 50 teenagers and a 17 year old boy gave me a prophetic word and that prophetic word related to my unbelief and um it it seemed to me in that moment that god knew precisely who i was and um, that broke all of the boxes for me in terms of what I believed about God. It answered so many questions and caused me then to turn my attention to rereading scripture. And it was that journey of me saying, okay, if God knows me specifically, I really have no idea who God truly is. Um, because at that point, um, not a single one of my peers, none of the pastors. So I was in a lectionary study group with several Lutheran and Presbyterian pastors. None of them would have ever said that you could directly interact with God here specifically from God. And um, I had never spoken to anyone who would have made that claim. And so here I have this young man telling me something that I had been grappling with for years. Um, and so I began rereading scripture to to see the character of God. Basically, I just That's, so you know this this whole thing you've just laid out here. I wanted to give you time to share this. You know, th there would be two perspectives on this. I think that that anybody who's aware of the current debate around uh, homosexuality, but also transformation, would have the one side would say well, you were homophobic about your own homosexuality. And so that's why you had this apparent mental illness, bipolar. And if you would have just accepted yourself for who you are, uh, then you wouldn't have had these mental problems. <clears throat> the other side would say, quoting from Acts chapter nine, um, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, why are you kicking against the goads? And yes. so you were under conviction and the spirit of God was, dealing with you and it was causing maybe not unlike nebuchadnezzar breaking down in the book of daniel uh because of his own in his case pride and arrogance uh and fighting against god until he finally capitulated and acknowledged the god of heaven it, that's a fascinating process to go through and it's not one that we hear of very often in conversation around this issue have you ever gone back to any of your former friends in that supportive community that were like your life preserver in those years or anyone else and shared this story and if so what how did they respond to that um you know a former lover uh responded as in you're demented and deluded 
and the community that you're within is cult like and and so eventually you will return to the truth of who you are a lesbian you know and how many years ago was that uh so it was 2003 when i had this encounter with the lord and and it was probably another 18 months after that maybe not quite that long that i i repented so the journey into scripture um, was really multifaceted for me. Um, so first it was acknowledging who God is. And I mean, I would say that God reverse engineered Romans one for me. Mm. Um, when I, when I ponder what happened to me, I, I had a, I had to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. And um, in doing that, I had to reevaluate what I had come to believe about scripture, but then about who I believed God to be and who I was in the context of his creation. And um, I remember specifically having a, a, a crisis reading scripture, recognizing a few key things. One in particular was that my notion of womanhood was really distorted. Mm. And, In and, what way? Well, I I certainly didn't want to embrace anything that looked like biblical womanhood. Okay. The notion of of submission, even mutual submission, um, to a man was anathema to me. And I remember looking at scripture and in this reread that I did saying, well, I don't really see lesbianism represented. And and I had created, you know, I had adopted this queer, queer theology. Um, and I and I began thinking, this is a misogynistic, patriarchal theological view. Mm. And exclusionary, really. And I began I, that crisis of queer theology does not represent me as a woman. I have rejected woman womanhood. Like I have made many judgments about what it means to be a woman. And, and at that time, um, I had done about as much as I could physically to reject my own femininity. Um, you know, uh, tried to tried to be, have a, a masculine affect or at least an androgynous affect. Um, and um, didn't really relate to women in any kind of healthy way. And so the notion of accepting uh, daughterhood, first of all, was yeah. challenging for me. And, and what I began to discover as I became familiar with the place of the Lord's presence, um, I became familiar with him, but I also became familiar with me. So, I mean, John Calvin came to life for me in this season, uh, insofar as I recognized that as I began to see the Lord, I also um, began to see myself very clearly. And um, in the end, I, I concluded that God was of inestimable worth, that he was transcendent and beautiful, and that if I could in some way connect to him, if I could have real fellowship and community, communion with him, fidelity with God, that he would give, he would give my, my life value. And wow. that was so 
that was the most important thing. So you stepped into a living revelatory experience of Romans 1. Uh, professing to be wise, they became fools. And you realized that a lot of what you'd been taught, a lot of the learning you had was actually not helpful um, and was contrary to what would bring you, uh, we could say, internal peace, I guess, for lack of other language. Um, but the other thing you found was that uh, you were rejecting your womanhood. I suppose there would have been, well, to be euphemistic, certain times of the month when that would have been particularly difficult to, uh, to ignore uh, and, and to maintain that, that facade. So you were continually being challenged in that way. And you finally come to where what John Calvin said, that true and principal knowledge consists of two parts, the knowledge of self and the knowledge of God. And that is to say, one cannot know oneself without actually knowing God, <clears throat> and neither can one know God without understanding oneself or one's own fallenness and need for God. I'm slightly paraphrasing the Institutes yeah. of the Christian Religion, but you actually lived that out as a revelatory experience. I did. And and that was, you know, it was a... Now, understanding in the context of... Um, I, I say this, and most people who know me can't really relate to this. They can't see it. But at the time, um, I was really, really radically suffering with mental illness. And, and so um, I was taking a whole host of medications, antipsychotic medications and mood stabilizing medications to manage my life. And I, I did not know at any moment whether I would have a psychotic break and kill myself. And that was a real imminent possibility. It wasn't like, oh, that might happen. No, it, I had had um, I had had psychotic episodes where there were periods lost to me. Like um, I remember at one point I was, so I used to live in Chicago. I was driving on the outer drive in Chicago. Suddenly I remember driving past Bears Stadium, headed to Hyde Park. I don't have any recollection of how I got off the outer drive. Um, I ended up at a an intersection and I was trying to figure out, I remember then at that point, trying to figure out where in the heck I was looking for a street sign. And I rolled into the car in front of me. Well, when that gentleman got out of his car to speak with me, I wasn't able to speak. And I, I couldn't completely understand what he was saying. And so I, I had a, an emergency sheet in my glove box because of this. And so I pointed to the glove box and he found this emergency sheet and called my parents. And next thing I know, I'm in the back of a police car headed to the hospital. I mean, that happened. I mean, I those things happened. <laughs> and so, okay, in this season of my life, I I I was destitute. And, you know, I'm kind of known by my intellectual ability today, but um, I was extremely inhibited at that time and wow. so um to find that god knew me that he had uh he could give meaning and purpose but most especially value to my life was um it was like i'd hit the jackpot and there was not any um 
there was not any turning back. I didn't have anything to, there wasn't anything more important to me, like life. And I didn't have this vision of, oh, I'm going to change my sexuality really in these couple of years. That wasn't an issue that I was concerned about. The, you know, I had already written off, you know, I'm born this way, all these other things. And that was not what I was concerned about. I was concerned whether I could find connection to God. And, and um, I was willing to sacrifice anything to get it. And so then when I did finally recognize, oh, there are all these judgments and this false sense of self that have compounded here, even my connection to the gay community and understanding that when you go to, when you come out and then you go to seminary openly gay, like I was probably one of six or seven students in that space. Well, it's not like today where everyone you turn, everywhere you turn, there's a gay person. No, I was pioneering back then. And um, it that sense of identity was preeminent. It was paramount to my sense of purpose and well-being. It gave meaning to my life. And so the the swap that I made in that season from L- LGBT identity to um, following the Lord wholeheartedly, it was a full full bodily trade. Yeah. Um, how, how did Jesus heal your mind, your mental health? I suppose with that, we would say also your emotional health. How did he do that as you crossed that frontier? I mean, it it probably was not an instantaneous and full healing. There was a process of kind of coming out of the, shall we call it the pit of despair? Um, how, how did how did he do that? What were some of the key markers or steps? Um, well, I think I would be remiss if I didn't also introduce the influence of my husband, Doug, in that season. And so we got married then a couple of years later, and I, I was still really messed up. It wasn't like when I mentor young uh, men and women today, the last thing I ever recommend is, yeah, go get married. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh in the context of, so so Doug felt a a real uh focused call to intercede for me and out of that then um developed a love for me that when I when I first started recognizing what was going on honestly um was humiliating to me like I was he was beginning to disciple me and he was pretty much engaged in full-time intercession for me, I would say. And um, as a little bit of a distant figure, he was called upon really to answer my questions about the Holy Spirit. So he became a really pivotal person in my life in this season, um, teaching me, convincing me that God was alive and real. I I know I would go to him with questions like, does prophecy happen? And and he would have answers for me. And um, we ended up getting married. And really at the beginning when I was quite broken. But if I if I hadn't have had his stability um, emotionally, but then also the the context of our intimate relationship 
I, I wouldn't have been able to work out a lot of the pain that um, was associated with my mil- mental illness. And um, now I, I can say that by bipolar, I, I do believe that it was really bipolar type one. I have all the family history to be able to prove that. And um, that the experiences I, I've since kind of processed with the lic- licensed psychologist, what happened to me? What did I go through? Was this real? Because my healing is so full and complete. Um, but what began at the very, very beginning, um, Doug would pray for me and I would begin to feel, I would sense and experience something in my mind. Mm. And it took me a couple of years to, to begin to comprehend how you even interact with the Lord. How do you hear from the Lord? Um, I, I remember vividly look, going to IHOP in Kansas City and looking at the antiphonal sing- singers and thinking, how are they doing that? How is that possible? I mean, things that we as in the charismatic streams take for granted um, were complete mysteries to me. And But so early on, it just became a place where the Lord could enter into a great deal of inner turmoil. Yeah. Um, So would it be, would it be fair to say that although the timing (laughs) was an interesting one, somehow in the midst of all of that, God actually used marriage as a means of grace or a way of bringing healing to at least some part of your human system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it gave me identity. So there were a bunch of things that happened out of that. Um, I made, I became terrified, maybe I should say horrified at the spiritual dynamics that had been in my life. So I became spiritually aware of a lot of the darkness that I had entertained that had been a part of my life. And, and I think are fully connected to the mental illness that I struggled with. And I think I need to say for your listeners that I am not associating LGBT identity with mental illness, but my own personal experience integrated those. Right. And, yeah, I think. Um, so I became aware that I had been radically, somehow radically touched by witchcraft and became highly sensitive to it. Mm. And, uh, So early on, I recognized that my inability to submit, my inability to submit even to my husband was a dynamic that I needed to address. And I, and I intentionally let the pendulum in my life um, to the road to humility. This was it. You know, I, the Lord had to really squeeze out of me this strong, arrogant, pride um, related to my gender, related to sexuality, my own sense of power. And I did that in the context of my marriage. Um, I allowed myself to become the typical Christian wife that I was so offended by when I, when I was first looking at womanhood in scripture. And, um, but then gradually over about five, a five-year period, 
as I began getting healthier, I stopped needing more and more of the drugs. So at first I stopped needing Ambien to sleep. And then I stopped needing uh, Ativan. I stopped having anxiety attacks. Um, I stopped, I, early on, I would have long seasons of just complete inability to communicate. Like I, I could sit in, an, in a living room, uh, in a silent room for all day and not talk to anybody, be completely consumed by ruminations. And um, that stopped happening for me. Um, I stopped needing antidepressants like Lexapro and Wellbutrin and Prozac and all of those. You know, I cycled through so many because my body chemistry would change. And so I'd need to change all the different ones. The, the drug that my psychiatrist advised me never to play around with really was lithium. Now I would go back and forth between Depakote and lithium. And um, in 2007, I did the 40-day fast that Lou Engel called ahead of the call in Nashville. Mm. And in the middle of that 40-day fast, I felt moved to go off lithium. And um, so I did. I tapered off lithium. And I, I have never used it since. I've never struggled with um now i you know i've had to learn how to manage my emotions uh having passion was frightening for me at first and any episode of depression any any heightened experiences were frightening for me so i had to learn how to self-regulate but still yet i've never had any major depressive or manic episodes since so praise god what a testimony. What an amazing testimony. And, you know, sometimes I think, uh, well, let me put it this way. In the healing ministry, everybody wants to see the instantaneous, dramatic, radical healing. And certainly those get your attention and praise the Lord when they happen. Having said that, we know just because we're all human and we live with this reality, there are times that healings don't occur instantaneously they occur progressively. And really what this, I think, communicates, you didn't say it this way, but Jesus was with you in the darkest night of the soul. Mm -hmm. And he walked you out of the valley of the shadow of death. Yes, he did. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't the end of, you know, my healing journey didn't end actually in 2007. Still in 2007, I don't think I would have said I had embraced femininity. Um, honestly, that took another seven or eight years um, to, to comprehend who am I as a woman? What does that mean? What is beauty? What is true beauty? Walking that mm -hmm. out. Um, really not, I would say not until I arrived out here in Bethel. So we moved to Reading in 2013. Um, and it was probably 2015, at least before I was feeling more confident in myself, feeling 51% whole or healthy, <laughs> you know, um, and, and getting a grip on, on who I was and who I was becoming. You know, you, when you were talking about the fact that you weren't sure almost day to day whether you were going to commit suicide. Um, talk to us for a moment about the internal dynamics there. Were you looking, well, looking to, that meant I knew the right way to say it, those suicidal thoughts, was that an attempt to escape 
internal pain, confusion, uh, just that's what you do as you reach a certain place in life. What was kind of the motivating or driving power behind that for you? Mm-hmm. Um, utter hopelessness. hopelessness, utter, utter hopelessness. Like, um, you know, I, I had gone from graduating at the top of my class and being proclaimed as capable to not, not being able, you know, I didn't hold after I finished college, I didn't hold a full-time job for almost, um, 15 years. And, and so, you know, the first full-time job that I was able to do, I, I worked in a nursing home, um, as an orderly changing bed linens. Mm. Um, I was, I was that incapacitated. And, and so, you know, as a child and, and growing up, the thing that I was most praised for was my intellect. And so then to utterly lose that, um, when I was, in in college but especially in seminary i you know i i don't i didn't struggle to comprehend what i was doing but i certainly didn't excel at what i was doing either and that sense of identity was lost to me um through mental illness and and so i didn't see any hope for my life yeah wow okay so hopelessness that's a that's a key anchor point now let's let's shift out of that period of your life and talk in our last few minutes about kind of where you are now you're interfacing essentially daily um, with issues of human sexuality morality even the question of what is normal and as you think about all of this and you know you have a you have a very wide scope because you interface with people all over the world on a regular basis what would you say are kind of the top three concerns in the current environment as we think about matters of identity, gender, morality, things like that. What what are you what are the big three that you see? In my in my conversations with people or right. Yeah. What's surfacing? What are the common themes? Well, I, I would say my biggest focuses at the moment are are on the authority of scripture and the preeminence of Jesus and and what what those mean for the individual who seems to be excluded from communion with those things and and so um i i am seeing right now uh the seeming overwhelming tidal wave of uh this lgbt political movement mm-hmm. so uh who would have thought really that the sexual revolution actually was a political revolution right um i i don't i don't even think people recognize it or realize it today but when you start to look worldwide it it is an absolute political revolution um on the caliber of marxism or communism and um, it's using sex as a human right to advance itself. And so it uses the notion of sex as a human right, and then it squeezes 
it squeezes whole cultures based on the notion of the injustice of being able to express oneself sexual, sexually. And, and it's using the LGBT non-discrimination language in order to advance itself. And so, you know, in the face of that, I, I'm watching this really dynamic syncretism occur with Christianity. Um, and what's being sacrificed? The sovereignty of God. Uh, can, Amen. can God, what identity does God give us? And then can God bring to pass his kingdom for someone with this life experience where their identity is so marred? And um, so I'm the battle is over unbelief. You know, as you say all of this and also just reflecting on what else you've shared, I can't help but think about the dialogue between Jeremiah the prophet and God, um, where God says, does the pot have the right to say to the potter, why did you make me thus? Mm -hmm. And it really seems to me that in the center of this entire conversation is the idea of the radical individualism divorced from, uh, from the creator. Um, and so, you know, people come unhinged from the creator and we'll just say bad things result when that happens, but, but it's being rid out on a large canvas. Mm -hmm. I, I can't hardly, I don't think I can emphasize strongly enough how it is impacting the whole world. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've just come from the GAFCON conference in, in, uh, in, in Rwanda and uh, the Global Anglican Futures Conference that occurred there uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the, they united the Anglicans from around the world, representing 85% of Anglicans from across the world, came together to redeclare, basically, or re-emphasize the headship of Jesus Christ over the church and the authority of scripture. And the what was the topic that that forced them to make that stand? It was sexuality. It was the LGBT topic. Right. And, and so, like to say, we are in this glaring Romans one moment. We we are in a Romans one moment. And the Anglican Church, it was it was one of the most marking experiences I think I've ever had to see the majority of this denomination come together and say, "Come what may." we will continue to stand on the belief that Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Irregardless yeah. of whether it looks loving to, you know, incorporate this community and, and to accommodate these cultural, these new cultural norms, we're going to do what we have to, to protect that space, even if it means separating from the church of England. And um, as I was there, I was speaking to hundreds of Ugandans. So you know, Uganda is just right there. They've driven a few hours to be there. And um, about this legislation that has recently been passed in Uganda, this anti-LGBT legislation, and um, asking them, first of all, saying, so as someone who has experienced this and has, you know, by God's mercy, I do not still experience same-sex attraction. But it's not unfamiliar to me, and it wouldn't be impossible for me to experience. And uh, it's more familiar than opposite sex lust. 
And, and so I told my bishops, new bishop friends from Uganda, I said, this is terrifying to me to think that someone with this type of experience would be facing um, jail time or some kind of overt criminalization from these feelings. And his response to me was, well, first of all, we're doing this legislation and partnering that with an avenues of care, avenues of, of concern and compassion, but also drawing a line of, we're not going to have this kind of behavior infiltrate our culture because we have seen what it is doing to the institution of the family. And we're not going to have our children um, engaging in these sexual behaviors and identifying separate from the family. We're, we're just not gonna do that. The only way we know how to protect our culture and our cultural identity, because homosexuality is not natural, it's not inherent in our culture. It does it happen? It could happen, but it's rare. And um, we're not going to have that in our culture. How else? Yeah. How else are we going to stop? How are we going to stop the embrace of this um, alternative sexuality? And and so, I mean, in the context of those questions, if you just look at USAID and it, the amount of the millions of dollars that USAID is spending in Africa or UNESCO in Africa to ensure that um, LGBT identity is embraced and empowered and pressed into these cultures for children at very young a very young age. This movement is so expansive. It is it boggles my mind, really. Yeah. Well, that leads us, I think, to a good closing question, which is, um, as in, so these are, these are global issues. There's governments involved and there's a lot we could say even about that, but time won't permit it right now. Maybe we'll do another one of these down the road. Um, but what can our listeners individually do, uh, to engage with this problem in a productive and wholesome way? Well, I like to encourage people to believe that the gospel is good news to LGBT identifying people and, and that surrender to Christ, surrender of LGBT identity is, so, you know, you'll get this when you talk to Ken, but I, I want to say explicitly that our, our mandate at Changed isn't that change in sexual behavior is akin to or even paramount to salvation. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying, oh, you must change to be a Christian. Um, we we have, you know, there's a whole backstory to changed, and perhaps you can have Ken share that. But changed is about the test of testimony that we have changed. It's not the demand that you must change. Um, and I'm contending for the the sincere and authentic personhood of every person who has LGBT experience, a rehumanization process, if you will, whereby they realize, oh, it isn't that I was born this way. It's that there are multitudes of complex cultural factors that have gone into influencing my sense of identity and my expression and my need for intimate relationship that have all come together under this narrative that I've embraced. And 
the LGBT narrative has everything to do with the experience you have. And um, that that's a long conversation point. Now I'm regretting that I talked so long about mental illness, but, you know, um, and so at some point before the Lord, you find yourself as just a person, as yep. a man or a woman. And, and the longer you spend right there, you discover, oh, um, there are things in me and about me that the Lord has has intentionally placed and created. And my embrace of myself as he created me is the way, it's the means to perfect fidelity uh, in the end game. Like to the degree that I want to, you know, continue to embrace a cultural norm or a cultural identity, a social identity over and above my desire to embrace God's identity for me is my own self-limiting belief. I'm just limiting myself in what I experience of the Lord. And um, I'm, who knows what the Lord, you know, the Lord does all kinds of things in all our lives and, and works. And he worked in my life for a, a long time before I repented. Um, and so for people today, as they're looking at the LGBT community, the key there is introducing people to Christ and, and discipling them into this space of earnest and sincere surrender and following of Jesus, as opposed to being overly wrought with the need to focus on one's sexuality or, or unique brokenness. Um, getting that attachment to Jesus as the primary thing, that putting Jesus in that place of sovereignty is that's more important than everything else. Yeah. And, and so as believers helping our, you know, praying for interceding for our gay friends and then constantly bringing them back to whether it's your testimony in Jesus or whether it's a walk through the scripture to find Jesus, as opposed to find anything about your true identity. Once you see Jesus, the other things will start to come, come together. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's a very redemptive note on which to end this podcast. Elizabeth, this has been extremely powerful, uh, very deep. I knew it would be because that's the kind of woman you are. Um, I wish we could go longer. I have another commitment that is forcing me to uh, end here, but um, I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear more from you. And so we will have you back uh, and we'll, we'll explore some of these other areas in more detail at that time. Well, I would love that. Thanks so much. And thank you for, for this converse, this month-long conversation here in June on these key topics. Um, and thank you for your ministry, just knowing how many people like me that you have led out of kind of the wilderness space. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. <laughs> My pleasure. Grant, any closing comments before we go? Not, not other than I'm looking forward to having you back for sure. And uh, yeah, I felt like we could sit here and talk about this for uh, the next several, several, several hours. So yeah, I look forward to that and we'll, we'll get back around and, and plan that. But, uh, but thank you both for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us uh, today. And we want to thank you, the listener as well. We will be back here uh, at the same time next week with another episode of God is not a theory with Ken Fish. recently updated the Orbis Ministries app with Ken's free teaching archive. You can click on the link in the description of this podcast to download today.